break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 2nd of September 2021. Very happy to be with you here on the show Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about massive wealth inequalities here in the United States. We're going to be talking about prison gerrymandering. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the shameful settlement and the Purdue Pharma Oxycontin cases. Well, yesterday, Purdue Pharma was ordered dissolved by the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in White Plains, New York. The centerpiece in a massive settlement of thousands of lawsuits by states, local governments, individuals, and Native American nations against the company and its controlling owners, the Sackler family. For the company's role, and at least potentially the family's role in fueling the opioid epidemic, a public health crisis that killed 500,000 people, the effects of which are still felt. The deal amounts really to a very large fine for the Sackler family that won't have any substantive impact on their massive wealth and that shields them from all civil responsibility for their role. In fact, it really does more than that. It leaves much of their potential role unexplored and offers a very mild settlement agreement given the carnage caused by Purdue's chief product, Oxycontin. The deal consists of a few moving parts. First, as mentioned, Purdue Pharma is dissolved. The Sacklers are stripped of ownership of the U.S. assets of Purdue Pharma, and a new pharmaceutical company will be established as a nonprofit, and the profits from that company will be funneled mainly to addiction treatment programs. The Sacklers will pay a $4.5 billion fine in installments over nine years, drawn from the proceeds of the sales of Purdue's international assets and their other investments. The Sacklers are estimated to be worth roughly $11 billion, and since some of the settlement is based off of new money from the proceeds of future sales, it's clear their fortune won't take much of a hit, and they will remain one of the country's richest families. In terms of how the money will flow, the New York Times relates, quote, States will get money from a national opioid abatement trust, which they will distribute to their local governments. Native American tribes have their own fund. Another fund will compensate 130,485 individuals and families of those who suffered from addiction or died from an overdose in amounts ranging from $3,500 to $48,000. Guardians of about 6,550 children with a history of neonatal abstinence syndrome may each receive about $7,000. Now, how long it'll take to pay out the money isn't clear, but it certainly is likely to take longer than a decade, perhaps as long as two. Settlement gives the Sackler family immunity from civil lawsuits, meaning they can't be sued for a personal role in encouraging the company or perhaps encouraging the company to push Oxycontin despite knowing it was addictive. The Sacklers have vehemently denied having any real directing role and have stated their role as board members was simply to ask certain questions. The company, however, itself did admit in 2007 to misleading people about the risks of Oxycontin, and that's similar to the admissions of several drug companies now at this point that were also pushing opioids. But some of the conversations that the Sacklers maintain are just those of diligent board members do raise some eyebrows. 
As the Times reports, quote, in 2011, as states looked for ways to curb opioid prescriptions, family members peppered the sales staff with questions about how to expand the market for the drugs. One of the members of the Sackler family, Mortimer Sackler, asked if they could sell a generic version of Oxycontin in order to capture more cost-sensitive patients. According to one email, his half-sister, Kath, maybe Kathies, sorry if I got that wrong, suggested studying patients who had switched to Oxycontin to see if they could find patterns that could help them win new customers, according to court filings in Massachusetts. And further, in 2014, Raymond Sackler, now deceased, sent three other family members a confidential memo about Purdue's strategy for placing patients on high doses of opioids for extended periods of time. The memo noted that doctors had argued against the practice, but that Purdue had beaten back efforts to impose caps on doses, according to the Massachusetts complaint. The next year, Jonathan Sackler, then a board member, sought information about how public health campaigns to curb opioid addiction would affect Oxycontin sales. In 2017, he pushed to develop a new opioid and asked the staff to present a plan at the next Purdue board meeting. Just asking questions, they say. At this point, though, whether these were all just innocent questions, conversations and musings or something much more sinister will never be disputed in court. The Sackler family is, though, still potentially open to criminal charges, but none are really expected since criminal liability is considered much harder to prove. So ultimately, quite a bit of what took place could remain unknown in terms of the potential culpability of the Sacklers themselves and the true depths of the culpability of Purdue Pharma in pushing the opioid crisis. Now, they did agree to release 30 million documents that could, for the historical record, at least shed more light on how Purdue was playing a role in stoking the opioid crisis, but it seems relatively clear given their strong denials that these 30 million documents won't be the full story about what the Sacklers' involvement was or wasn't. Nine states have objected to the appeal, as has the U.S. trustee, that's a Department of Justice office that monitors bankruptcy proceedings. Some of the parties that are objecting plan to appeal, although they are not widely expected to prevail. Many involved in the lawsuit seem to be expressing as much resignation as happiness when they spoke to the media, and the deal seems widely viewed by the plaintiffs as the best they were going to get, with the alternative being years of potentially fruitless litigation made possible by the Sacklers and Purdue's tremendous financial powers. All in all, this feels like a fairly shameful end to the flood of lawsuits seeking some level of accountability for Purdue Pharma's role in the opioid crisis, but it does seem indicative of the American criminal legal system where the richer you are the less responsible you seem to be held for any potential crimes you may commit. Well, in some good news, Pennsylvania has decided to restrict the process of prison gerrymandering and without legislation, in fact. And Montana seems to be following close behind, showing that momentum is starting to build to end this absurd anti-democratic and racist practice all around the country. These decisions are coming now because with the new census out, redistricting has begun across the country. Most states who have done this recently have had to pass legislation, but in Pennsylvania, the Legislative Reapportionment Commission, after an advocacy campaign was directed towards them, decided to end prison gerrymandering when drawing state legislative districts. In Montana, the state redistricting committee voted earlier this month to require the Department of Corrections to collect comprehensive last known address data for incarcerated people, along with more overall data about race and previous residential addresses. Alongside several declarative statements against prison gerrymandering, they appear to be laying the groundwork for ending the practice as they draw the state's new legislative districts. 
Prison gerrymandering is the practice of counting incarcerated people who can't vote in 48 states as residents of the area where they are incarcerated, not where they are from. Prisons tend to be in more rural areas and more white areas. So the impact of prison populations can have a disproportionate role in terms of how especially state legislative districts are drawn, but really almost all election districts. And there's also, of course, another side to that, and that's since the disproportionate number of the people, as I mentioned, are black, indigenous, and Latino, and the areas prisons are in are overwhelmingly white, the practice has the effect of diluting political power in heavily non-white urban working class communities and enhancing the political power of more rural, more white areas. There's another element to it as well. Prison gerrymandering also has a major impact within rural communities themselves. In a rural county, the local electoral districts often contain very few people, and prisons usually sit in one district. This affects how local lines are drawn, and you end up with districts with very few people, and in fact, in a number of known cases, below 100 people, gaining the representational equivalent of over 1,000 in other districts of their county. The obvious injustices here and the act of organizing around issues of mass incarceration have seen over the past 10 years, several states and over 200 communities around the country restrict the practice. New York, Maryland, Virginia, New Jersey, Connecticut, Virginia, Illinois, Colorado, Washington, California, and Nevada have all ended prison gerrymandering in state legislative districts. However, there are many different rules in these states around congressional or local elections, and also there are provisions in some of the states where the issue of gerrymandering being banned only applies to state prisoners, not federal prisoners. There are also issues in various different states of counting prisoners without addresses. They don't know what your last known address is. At some, they're counted at the facility. Some, they're counted at large. So I say all that just to say that while the restrictions that do exist in these states are very notable, the practice still continues in a truncated form in many of these states. In 11 other states, including Florida, Missouri, Georgia, Kansas, and Minnesota, there's legislation that has been introduced to ban the practice. Now, all that being said, in the states where it does continue, prison gerrymandering is likely to be used to enhance efforts in states controlled by the right wing to gerrymander districts to increase their voting power, an effort to further entrench the right wing power base, which represents a sizable but clear minority of people through statistical tricks and other forms of voter suppression. A new compilation of research on wealth inequality between families in the United States has revealed, and maybe perhaps at this point this is unsurprising, but it is certainly notable, major differences between those at the top and bottom of the wealth equation, extreme wealth inequality between families. Overall, the report details that the research shows, quote, 1% of parents control 44% of all wealth held by households with children, while the top 10% control 82% of all the wealth held by households with children. This is actually an 11% increase in the share of wealth controlled by families in the top 1% since 1989, and a 14% increase for the top 10%. Also, and also perhaps unsurprising for the United States, the data reflects sharp racial dimensions to the structure of wealth inequality in this country. The report details, quote, in 2019, white child households had median wealth levels of $63,838. Compared with black child household levels of $808. Expressed as a ratio, these estimates indicate that at the median for every dollar of white child household wealth, black child households had one cent. Relative to African Americans, Hispanic child households had substantially higher levels 
$3,175, but still only five cents for every dollar of white wealth, end quote. The research lays out many things about the racial stratification of the class structure. The report details, quote, among households where the head has a high school degree or less, white child households have median wealth levels 32 times higher than those of black or Hispanic child households. Among those with bachelor's degrees or more, white child households have wealth levels that are six times as high. The racial ethnic discrepancy in wealth levels among the most educated is so vast that black and Hispanic child households with at least a bachelor's have wealth levels, 23,336, that only slightly exceed that of whites that did not graduate high school, $22,907. In comparison, though, the median wealth for a white child household with a bachelor's degree or more is $157,732. So it really just makes it clear that there are yawning gaps between the ultra-rich and everyone else, but also a range of hierarchies and strata within that everyone else. And ultimately, this represents the material impact of the ideological functioning of white supremacy to secure maximum profit accumulation through the creation of overwhelmingly working class subsets of the population and to secure social control through the political mobilization of white supremacy to divide people. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 